Welcome, Ecom Logistics Nation. Thank you for joining today's episode. We're on a mission to share e-commerce logistics insights, trends, successes, and challenges from the leaders and innovators in our space. There's no way around the fact that you have two stacks of margin. There's literally no way. I mean, and I think that is where Amazon has that waiting game where, where, where they're saying in that like, look, yeah, maybe brands like you, but in the long term, economics will win and service levels will win. And that's been Amazon's bet for 15 years. And it's, 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 a, pretty, it's a pretty good bet. Welcome Ecom Logistics Nation. This episode, we welcome Rick Watson, founder and CEO of RMW Commerce Consulting, a firm Rick founded after spending 20 plus years as a technology entrepreneur and operator in the e-commerce industry, working with companies like Channel Advisor, where he was employee number one, and which was just acquired this week by Commerce Hub, we'll get into in a few minutes, Barnes and Noble, and Pitney Bowes to name a few. He's deservingly known as a thought leader and subject matter expert in the e-commerce space, host of his own podcast, The Watson Weekly, and sought-after guest to just about every e-commerce podcast there is. Rick, it's an absolute pleasure to have you, and welcome to the Ecom Logistics Podcast. Thanks so much, Dan and Anad. Uh, really happy to be on uh, with, with two uh, such great supply chain professionals. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And to the intro, I just got to add, the guy that's not afraid to say things (laughs) that we are all thinking on. Yes. Because um, I'm like, did Rick just say that? Yes, he did. Yes, he did. Right. Uh, LinkedIn, the presence on LinkedIn specifically, that's where I get most of my (laughs) Rick fix, let's call it. Right. The unfiltered (laughs) Rick. Yes, Uh, we love it. Exactly. Did he just say that? I was just (laughs) thinking about it, but I didn't want to say it, but he just did. So. No, it's amazing. It's great. Right? I mean, for me, it's um, th- there's a value in being in- independent that I think most people don't appreciate. And I didn't learn that when I was was at Channel Advisor for ten years, and I was an employee, and it was very much that you know there are certain things you can say and you can't say. You know, if you work for Amazon, if you work for Target, I went to work for Barnes and Noble, and I realized that. When I was there, no one was caring about Barnes & Noble. Everyone had already written them off. So I, I could write <laughs> on Twitter, on LinkedIn, or blog. I could say whatever I wanted, and no one really cared. Uh, there wasn't any corporate PR you know, filtering me. And, and that was just something I remembered at the time. It was like, huh, that's like a cool thing to be able to do, to say what you feel, because it's rare. And I think I've kind of taken that with me when I started my own business. Now I am truly independent. You know, look, I have customers. Uh, I don't truly, it's not my job and it, it is certainly not my intention to upset anyone. I, I try to never say anything that I wouldn't tell someone if I were in the same room with them, even if I'm speaking directly about the company, even if it's critical feedback, I, I try not to say it in a malicious or hurtful way at all. Yeah. And I mean, you know, it's a, it's an entrepreneurial ecosystem, right? It's all B2B. You know, we are working with the the giants within the e-com space. And then there is this large pool of merchants, right? All we are trying to do is speak on behalf of the merchants to say, what makes sense for you when it comes to all of these new strategies being deployed by all of these companies that are out there? 
and it's not against a company or otherwise right it's more to do with how does the merchant succeed and navigate through the complexities of e-commerce so yeah. thank you for yeah. doing the yeah. service yeah. my friend yeah yeah that's great so maybe rick we could uh jump into you know channel advisor who you just mentioned you know i thought it was really interesting doing the research that you were employee number 1 so obviously they're on the uh, early days, ground floor, you know, and um, I don't know if you still have some stock options. Maybe you were excited this week, uh, but uh, wanted to get your thoughts on, you know, obviously the the news that they were acquired by Commerce Hub. Looks like that was for roughly, you know, somewhere around six hundred and sixty three million dollars. And just curious about your thoughts and and how you see this playing out in the market. Yeah, it's it's interesting. Uh, I don't have any stock and. Uh, they went public in 2013, and within a couple of years after, I think I, I sold my stock. But um, kind of the early shares, you know, long ago were the most valuable ones in any event. Um, but um, no, it was exciting to see it. And I think the biggest thing is Channel Advisors seems like it's been for sale for a little while now. You know, yeah. and when I say for sale, it's not like they were actively in a hurry to sell. But I think they were actively trying to find the right partner. Um, and again, this is not something sort of like publicly out there or not. And it, it may not be 100% true, but it's I think it's close to true that um, they were trying to look for the right strategic fit for the business. Because I don't think, you know, right, was Channel Advisor going to be a public independent company for the next 10 years? Probably not. And yeah. uh, I think the one thing that... Um, particularly the CEO, David Spitz, who I actually worked for back when I was there before he, would, he was even CEO there. He started as director of business development at, at Channel Advisor when he came on and he was running product management and I was the director of product management. So I got to meet with him every day, every, day, every week. And th- think of David Spitz as like uh, Warren Buffett. That, that's, that's how he thinks about the world. He thinks about value. He thinks about long-term shareholder value. He thinks about long-term profitability. And the beautiful thing about that way of thinking is it gives him optionality, which means like he's not, he doesn't have to be in a hurry to find the right partner. He can afford to wait for the right player. And I think um, 95% of the startup world does not think this way. They're like, oh, we're just going to spend another 20 points. I mean, you saw Avalara got, you know, the darling, everyone needs Avalara, but what's the secret of Avalara? It's not a secret. They, they're losing 25, you know, for every $100 they make, they're losing $125, period. You know, right. Channel Advisor is not in the same, you know, bucket by any stretch of the imagination, yet one company is growing at 35% year over year and Channel Advisor is growing at 15% year over year. And that 20% difference is the VC narrative, you know, I mean, that, that, that entire thing yeah, is a exactly. VC narrative. So I think that's the starting point before. Exactly. It's burning, exactly. it's burning your I, cash, I before, right? To me, that's the backdrop of the entire conversation before we even start talking about Commerce Hub or, or this or that. Uh, yeah. Though from a channel advisor perspective, like I've, I've been close to it. I've used the product, right? And definitely you built the product, uh, leading product development or, you know, product management on that side. I do feel from a technical perspective, 
it is it needs modernization right that it has not gone through it is it feels a bit dated of course it can do this at a mass scale it has a lot under the hood but there is modernization so i really hope like whatever happens with commerce hub there is a little bit additional product development cash infusion that goes into it and evolves the product to the the maturity that it requires in a modern architecture modern stack because we are seeing other products evolve and they have been evolving for a while and formidable opponents and you know they, that, are, that are starting to kind of show yeah. up to the channel and, and i think so and you can look at it if you look at their pnl you know what percent of their pnl and i looked this up the other day which is why i know it 10 percent of their of their revenue is r&d well average SaaS company is 20 to 25 percent so you know what you're saying is objectively true based on their investments in the past 10 years relative to other SaaS businesses that are in your head. Like, this is what SaaS innovation looks like. And there's no secret. You can't, you know, squeeze more blood from a stone if you're not pouring money in to the top line. So you're going to innovate faster if you do two things. You like you have more engineers or you acquire more companies. Like pick pick one. Very Really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Well, maybe we move on to uh, some other big news that that's happened in the past week, and that's that's Amazon announcing a new service called AWD, which is Amazon Warehousing and Distribution. It's a it's a service that is going to offer its warehousing, distribution, and fulfillment service to merchants. And the interesting part or the catch or the value prop, this is for orders placed outside of Amazon's marketplace being fulfilled by Amazon. So basically taking on the entire e-commerce fulfillment 3PL space. So Rick, I'd love, you know, we'd love to hear what your thoughts are in this, you know, on this move by Amazon. And if you see brands, you know, flocking to the service or cautiously evaluating it. Yeah, I, I think there are, two big use cases that I think will help Amazon in the short term. And I think those will overcome kind of the popular perception of like, oh, I don't want to give everything to Amazon. I think there are two scenarios that are the most important in the short term. Number one is FBA replenishment. Uh, a lot of 3PLs are not good at it. Don't want to yes. do it. They're not making money on it. Um, yep. And I think who's... Brands need it <laughs> and 3PLs don't want to do it. And so that's low hanging fruit from Amazon, from my point of view. Uh, so the prep work and the distribution work, 100%. getting it all ready to go into the network. A hundred percent. And that's, so I think it is very, if you just kind of look at the fulfillment journey Amazon has been on since 2005, you kind of go back to like, why are they in fulfillment at all? It's because third parties suck at fulfillment, period on their own and and the the service compared to amazon is terrible and they their job is to reduce variance period i wrote, wrote about this this morning like reducing variance is the number one goal of almost any supply chain leader uh, as you know not and damn uh and yeah. so that's their job and where is the next huge source of variance it's fba replenishment that's that's a huge source and then two is um, to your point, to the point of FBA in general, for the past at least three to five years uh, and probably more, 
almost every brand I talk to is at their FBA limits. They can't get any more space, even if they mm -hmm. wanted to. And so some of them are even like acquiring brands to, you know, to like doing like get more space. <laughs> financial gymnastics to get more space and having to optimize what goes in there and when and Amazon doing the opposite, trying to move out. Yeah. Keep raising rates to move out slow movers. That's that is a lot of friction. And Amazon does not like friction. Amazon likes things smooth. Um, and so I think if they can cut off all that overhead between Amazon on the, on, on Amazon side and Amazon things in terms of like kind of Kaizen, like continuous improvement. And if there's like any little friction between those things, Amazon is going to try to eliminate it as long as it has the eventual goal of making sure that this item is in stock just 5% more than their competition, then Amazon wins because Amazon is caring about that 5% that they're losing through the replenishment process. Like just talking about just one aspect. Right. And also there is additional revenue opportunity on top of that, right? While you can solve for your own problem, uh, build this infrastructure because it's not going to be infrastructure just dedicated to AWD, right? This new infrastructure should be focused on doing FBA as well. So AWD might just be a corner of a larger building where replenishments are no longer moving between buildings. They could just be moving between one side <laughs> of the building to the other right. side of the building, right? Like you will start seeing to that point you made about the friction, right? And Amazon wants things to be simple things as they should come into the Amazon network needs to be prepped. It needs the right label. It needs to have the FN SKU on it or the ASIN reflected on it. All of these requirements that they have is to find greater efficiency downstream as they, they, they process. Now, when you go to a traditional 3PL and say, you need to make me Amazon compliant, you have to work with Amazon's APIs. Notoriously, complex and they have done some really good job lately in producing SP APIs or the, the seller platform APIs that have made things a little easier, but very few 3PLs have been able to automate that entire process of mm. FBA prep, generating FBA labels and then sending it out. So it's all manual. It's fraught with errors. So by the time it actually ends up in an Amazon <laughs> warehouse, the, the merchant's paying yeah. for a penalty. So you're solving for that while taking that chapter out of the, the 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 playbook that Amazon's used over years, right? Like the AWS playbook. If they can succeed with this, they could become a serious multi-basket fulfillment solution across multiple channels. Things that, you know, we could dream of, they are able yeah. to pull it off. So I'm... And, and, and yeah. by the way, like, look, it's not like logistics is a uh, high margin business. In fact, you know, storing items in the warehouse and shipping them out. If you take away the label, there's no margin anywhere. Like literally there's no, there's yep. no margin the whole process, exactly. but FBA prep, exactly. That's the only source of margin left. Like if you're, if you're a 3PL or like, well, at least if I'm going to do this work that I don't want to do, I'm going to charge this convenience fee for it. And Amazon is looking at this. It's like, well, <laughs> This, <laughs> thank you. I'll take that too. Um, you know, it's just classic right out of their playbook. 
Exactly. And, and the margin resides in higher volume, higher throughput, right? Like, so if you talk about t- picking and packing versus like, of course, you can arbitrage the transportation and on the label yeah. make some money. But when it comes to pick and pack, it all comes down to efficiency, efficiency, efficiency. And efficiency is gained with more volume you can have. And Amazon's, again, with their own infrastructure, if they can start pushing 15, 20, 30, 40, 50,000 orders from a single facility, the capital investment that's necessary to bring in automation that drives additional efficiency, they can make it actually profitable. Pick and pack can be profitable, but you require real scale. And Amazon, when it comes to scale, we all know <laughs> exactly. About it. So yeah, not a concern there. No, for sure. And I think the other side of the equation for AWD is buy with Prime. And, and so look at what Amazon is trying to do. Let's go back to the genesis of buy with Prime. Off Amazon, e-commerce is growing faster than Amazon, period. End of story for the past at least three, four years. And Amazon does not want that trend to continue indefinitely. And so I think um, kind of looking at how do we go to market? Could we go to market in the UK? They went to market as a carrier. Yeah, I'm sure, you know, I haven't heard like big results from it. Moderately successful. They had a... a a, uh, a prototype that they rolled out in California and a few other places to to roll out directly as a carrier that they canceled during the pandemic, understandably. Uh, and I think, do we want to fight UPS and FedEx at their strength? Does that make any sense? Let's go where we have some leverage. What is the biggest leverage of Amazon? Pride. So how can we roll a struggling, you know, I would say relatively struggling Amazon payment service plus huge parcel opportunity, plus huge unused fulfillment space. It's, I mean, like you, the six page memo writes itself as far as I'm concerned yep. with, the, with yeah. the buy with prime opportunity. And maybe, uh, you know, the, so I've done my research on buy with prime, but I, I think Rick, you are much closer to it. And this is a, this is an amazing subject to kind of get into just for the audience. Like, a snippet of what is buy with prime your perspective how does a merchant use it there there is some confusion around it so if if you could help because i think it's only uh invitees or you got to go on a list or something uh at this yeah, point so right? i think there are a couple of restrictions on buy with prime number one is amazon is equipping and training agencies particularly like website development agencies to implement buy with prime and what is buy with prime is essentially um, two things. It's a buy button. It's promotions. People forget about the second part. It's promotions and it's available. It's an availability promise all within one compact package of JavaScript that lives on right now on a product page of the website. But I think in the future, other, other places to be accommodating carts and things like that. But essentially you see, Buy with Prime on a product page below the Add to Cart button. You will get this product in two days. And if there's a relevant Amazon promotion for this item, it will also appear on the cart because we've actually seen that. For instance, like, oh, get 10% off uh, because this is a lightning deal. Hmm. So Amazon will surface the relevant promotion on the, on the website, not just on Amazon. Um, which I think is an interesting thing. So 
So website being exactly. like Shopify, right? Exactly. Like so it will show up on Shopify's product page that there is a lightning deal and you can do an add to cart, which is Shopify, or you can do buy with Prime. So you got pretty much two add to cart mm-hmm. buttons on the 100%. same page. Yeah. And the the requirement for doing that is it's very simple. You have to store your items with Amazon. Yep. So it's the AWD service, right? So basically it's almost it's fulfilling an order placed outside of Amazon using the buy with prime button fulfilled by Amazon. Yeah. And and, and if you look, if you think about Amazon, Amazon marketplace is uh, I would say relative to a lot of e-commerce, particularly things at FBA, these are fast movers. And so if you have a new service that requires it to be an Amazon infrastructure and that's your point of leverage, then most, if you think of the average big commerce or Shopify site, there's not fast movers. There's like two, maybe one SKU yeah. that's a fast mover. And so what happens to the 99% of your selection that you can't put on buy with Prime? So that's a huge opportunity miss if they don't have a service like AWD. Yep. Exactly. So, okay, okay. So Shopify, let's stick to that, right? So now I'm a <laughs> Shopify merchant and I have this logo on there, right? Or it says buy with Prime or, or checkout. Shopify has ShopPay. And Shopify, if I'm not mistaken, at the lowest tier is like 2.9% of the transaction and 30 cents on uh, uh, each transaction that they charge, right? And that goes through when you go through that checkout experience. How does the buy with Prime experience look like? And where does Shopify sit in this entire situation? Like just. Uh, so right now Shopify is sitting. Uh, it's almost in a little bit of a passive aggressive situation where they have not definitively. From a corporate perspective, put any kind of hard press against Amazon on this. You know, the head of. You know, Toby has said, oh, we welcome what Amazon is doing from a terms of service. It's technically against Shopify's terms of service, and they will warn you about it if you try to install Buy With Prime. But they don't block it. You know what I mean? Because at the end of the day, although they could block it, um, uh, uh, you, you know, as an engineer, as any, any sufficiently creative engineer could uh, could work around it. Now, the average merchant couldn't exactly. do it, but the, the, an agency could if they really put their mind to it. You know, they put mm-hmm. a CMS in the middle or they, you know, write a wrapper JavaScript library that calls by with Prime on the back end that Shopify can't see because it's a server-side call. So there, there are various ways around it that even Amazon could could do. Obviously, they they could spoof. <laughs> they, could, they could do a lot of things, but... Um, at the end of the day, if Shopify makes it easier or hard is, um, it's an important point, I think, for the world because uh, the volume of merchants there. What, what I think is going to be more interesting is if, is where's the parser volume? The parser volume is not generally at these small Shopify brands. It's at the big retailers. And so the question is like, are there big retailers that are going to adopt buy with prime 
that are going to make a difference from a volume point of view. And I think that gets a little bit lost in the kind of the Shopify situation. Yeah. At, at that point, I think the bigger concern is going to be around the larger 3PLs, mm-hmm. right? That if the retailers start <laughs> doing buy with prime in embedded, and now you are moving your logistics to Amazon that's where the larger 3PLs, some of the big names that we have mentioned without mentioning, <laughs> um, are definitely going to start re- batting an eyebrow because I, I don't think you can compete. I just, you literally cannot outbuild what Amazon has done at this point. You just have to innovate in other ways, but being able to infrastructure compete with Amazon, uh, yeah. it's going to it's, it's take my, a lot. My, my friend Dave Glick, who, who incidentally, he and I are, are speaking in about two weeks at ASCM in Chicago. And he, he likes to say that Amazon used to used to think about like how many UPSs are we going to build this year? Yep. And, and the reason it. you could say that is because UPS is spending about three three four billion dollars in capex a year, and Amazon is spending twenty. And that disparity exactly. is only going to keep getting wider, wider and wider. So uh, it's, exactly you know just just the 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 Shopify buy with prime dichotomy of that entire situation and taking the revenues kind of away from Shopify while Shopify has shop promise and Shopify logistics, right? Like there is that other side of that to try and compete with these situations. My personal take is not going to be enough. Of course it creates choices. I don't think it is. Yeah. I mean, look, I think Shopify is far away from having any kind of optimized logistics network, even if you just use their publicly released stats, which is like the last earning call or the one before it, Shopify says, well, now uh, Harley, I think, released this stat saying 80% of parcels in Shopify fulfillment network, which is probably a very small number, but still even putting that to the side, uh, get to the consumer in two days. 80%. Like, you that worked, means you, you have you one worked, warehouse in the Midwest. You, you, you worked <laughs> in Target. Nanad, what does that mean in terms of the consumer experience? If eighty percent, where does that fall? If you if you put the top carriers and their performance, where would Shopify rank? So, uh, I mean, I'll answer it a different Mm -hmm. way. What we have found, and so Dan and I, from our experiences, we always believed that two day was the promise that everyone needs to deliver. That has that's table stakes, right? And when we build fulfillment networks, we always build to the two-day network. And that requires two warehouses, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but what we found is the long-term value of a, of, of a customer can actually be controlled when you have brand control, right? Like, so if your brand is so unique, right? So if you're a Shopify merchant that you are so unique, your customers are okay with a five-day and a seven-day delivery. If it's free, they are completely comfortable with it. And we have seen yeah, that yeah. over and over again. We got a few merchants. We have a jewelry merchant, right? Like that does exactly the same thing. But when it comes to general merchandise, yeah, there is absolutely two days is literally the minimum at this point. You know, I, I ordered a, a Philips razor uh, yesterday on Amazon and the expectation that it better be here today, right? Like, and... and even on Shopify, if I'm buying general merchandise where I have an option, I will abandon the cart on Shopify and go purchase somewhere else because I need that product immediately. Or at least 
I think I need the product immediately. And that's the experience from a target standpoint as well. Everything is two days and if not one day. That is pretty much the baseline experience and the consumer expectation in general merchandise is way different than brand. And if you have more of a brand command, yeah. it's a slightly different experience. And, and I, I, I agree with you 100% here. And I think that's actually, if you listen to Toby, he'll say the same thing. The CEO of Shopify, he'll say the same thing. It's like the world wants to create this narrative where we're competing with each other. But I think Shopify has, uh, there's a little bit of a dichotomy here where the world will paint them as, as competitive, but the average Shopify brand isn't trying to compete with a big retailer experience. Yeah. They're not. Absolutely. And, not. and they don't right. need yep. to. They're, they don't need to deliver. You don't need to deliver same day from a direct consumer brand website. And the reason is they don't, even if they could, they don't want to, because that would cut out their distribution channels. Exactly. <laughs> so they, they exactly. would kill their best customers and they're never going to do there. So I think Toby's broader point is actually true in that there's less, there's more white space for both to play in that both free. On one hand, not only is there white space because of what I just mentioned, you don't want to compete with your top retail distribution channels. So the other part reason that there's white space is um, that Shopify tends to be smaller merchants that want these personalized brand experiences. And so as a result, what's important? Unboxing. The branding yeah. of the box, the inserts, the the personalized attention, the note in the box that is signed by somebody who QC'd it for it. Does the average 3PL want to do that? That's right. You, yeah. can't, I mean, you, can't, you can't automate any of that stuff. You can't scale that out. You, you can't I, I mean, scale it out. I don't know the... I don't know the newest numbers from Shopify, but at one point, someone from Shopify long, long time ago told me something like 95% of Shopify merchants do less than 10 orders a day. And so you, you take that kind of, you know, Amazon's current infrastructure, you already said they got their own infrastructure. They have capacity constraints to put all the inventory that needs to go into the Amazon, you know, warehousing network into FBA, into a, a fulfillment network. You you translate that into Shopify merchant space. The amount of immaturity within some of the, that merchant space creates so much excess purchase that if Shopify logistics was just to take that inventory, it's going to be, they will be in the business of liquidation before they will be in the business of doing uh, uh, logistics, Right. That's the fun fundamental problem. And guess what? Amazon owns the infrastructure. They got no one else to pay for in between the Shopify logistics. As much as, you know, we are a software company, we want asset light. That's not a good thing in this space. You have to own it because now you are already in a hyper competitive market, which is a race to the bottom. You are creating two stacks of margin. You are acting as a 4PL. You got to pay the 3PL and you got to make sure you stay profitable. Who loses? The merchant. This is just yeah, I, my I, opinion I think, on this. Look, <laughs> I, I think there's no way around the fact that you have two stacks of margin. There's literally no way. I mean, and I think 
that is that is where Amazon has that waiting game. Um, yep. where, where, where they're saying in that, like, look, um, yeah, maybe brands like you, but in the long term, economics will win and exactly. service levels will win. And that's exactly. been Amazon's bet for 15 years. And it's, it's, it's a pretty, yep. it's a pretty good bet. Now there's the, the other side of the coin is, um, Amazon, the brand is not Amazon's customer. They're not. They don't care about the brand. They, they, to, to Amazon, a brand is a vendor, the customer is the customer. And so that is really the single point of differentiation that Shopify can hang their hat on, which I think works for a large percentage of the market. And, you know, especially for the, for the big guys, but for instance, like someone like AEO and quiet is, is trying to say like, Okay, Shopify isn't going to go where we are because you know we're not Amazon volume, but American Eagle is not shabby, uh, yep. and so they're trying to play that playbook in some sense, optimize for retail distribution, not necessarily only direct consumer. Although Quiet has a pretty good reputation there too, um, yep. but on a smaller scale and medium scale compared to Amazon scale, put it that way. I thank you for actually bringing that up because Dan and I actually talk a lot about this particular subject with American Eagle and, you know, oh, what are they doing? They are just building another 3PL, right? But you got to look at the intricacies of the technology that they are developing and owning the infrastructure along the journey while doing it. Of course, it's remotely nowhere close to Amazon scale. But what is being done when you bring in and pull in this network and own the infrastructure yourself, yeah, you do create a formidable network. So so that point of like when we were talking about Amazon warehousing and distribution, like what do retailers do? I think the first first stop along the journey might be the, the quiet platform solution before they say, okay, I've pretty much grown out and now I got got to go to Amazon, right? Like that's kind of where I see that journey evolving. I don't know if uh, American Eagles networks being today being developed to address the the mid and smaller market merchants whatsoever, I, right? Like I, they, I they, totally they, agree. I totally yeah. agree. And, and and by the way, yeah. they're 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 not going to go there because it's yeah. it's not a like you said, it's not a profitable segment. Like, yeah, un unless you are building a solution where you are going after product valuation and you can claim like I have thirty five thousand merchants in my network that do two orders a day. Yeah, uh, I, I, you know, the VC game loves that stuff. But when you look at the actual, <laughs> actual, you know, the, the P&Ls, uh, I don't think they look as interesting at that point. Look, I, I, mean, I think that's, there are two big Shopify problems they're, they're, they're going to have in the long term of the implementation is number one is if 90, like, let's just use your numbers for a second. They may not be the right numbers. 95% yeah. of Shopify merchants do less than 10 orders a day. What percentage of those those merchants churn every year. Massive. At least a third. Yeah. At least a yeah. third. Yeah. I bet it's closer to 50 we, in that segment, yeah. but it's at least a third. And so what's the, you've run a 3PL before. What's the cost to onboarding a merchant that churns in six months? It's painful. So, pain, so painful. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, like Dan is just getting into just and thinking about it. I can see it on his face. I am, I am, because you just you invest. You know, you're investing in that brand, right? You're 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 placing your bet on them that they're going to be successful, or it's almost like a portfolio, an investment strategy, right? You know, at least thirty percent have to be successful, or you're screwed because you just put all that time and energy into onboarding, and you never recoup your money back. Right, and that works for Shopify in. in the software space yeah, because their software. software is so easy. Someone can sign up in a weekend. If I want to, I could start a Shopify store in about 30 minutes while we're on this podcast. However, Shopify is a software company. Who are they really screwing over? They're 3PL partners because they're going to be eating this cost. Do you think they're going to charge that back to Shopify and Shopify is going to accept that cost? Nope. No nope. way. Yeah. Yep. No way. So it goes back to the the, so the I margin think on margin. Is going to have to own their infrastructure long term. They're just going to take the long way around. I, I wholeheartedly agree. That's the one thing. If like I, I've been saying this for a while, like Shopify <laughs> should own the infrastructure. And I know Toby's pretty much outright come out and said the the big big difference between you know they had choices when going out to the market and. Should it be delivered? Should it be something else? And it was, again, perception-wise, it was more like, we want asset light. That's amazing. But you just bought a marketplace fulfillment solution while you are a brand-centric fulfillment. So I, I, I mean, there are certain things to be said around that, <laughs> right? So from a deliver acquisition, it's like, okay, pretty cool, asset light, but their roots are walmart.com, right? Like it's designed for marketplace. It's 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 FBA network that you bought and not a true brand-centric fulfillment yeah. solution. Because if you look at the successful Shopify fulfillment services that are out there today, they don't they don't split inventory in more than two locations. While deliver starts with a minimum of four in most cases. Yeah. Right. So and the average average item per order is like 1.2, 1.3, right? Very marketplace-like outbound mm-hmm. volume. Yeah. yeah. So there's going to be some adjustment of the network that's going to come. And there, there's a bunch of really smart people out there. So I'm sure yeah. they'll figure it out. But uh, it's well, going to be an interesting dollar acquisition, they better, right? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> four. Four billion oh. dollar acquisition. Four billion dollar acquisition. What? I thought it was 2.1. I'm pretty sure. Maybe I'm wrong. Yeah. It was two point one, but yeah, that's uh, it's uh, when you're in that yeah, range. Totally right. <laughs> when yeah. you're in that range, it's just a huge number, right? And again, number. it's asset light, it's tech. Yeah, exactly. No, one hundred percent. And so I think Shopify has really two choices: long term, short term. I understand why they started with SFN. They 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 couldn't scale it on their own, probably because of their merchant base. And so they wanted to go wide, like how can we cover the broadest number of people and to allow the next level of learning? Okay, $2 billion may be over, maybe could be paying more or less than that, but they have the capability. They're, they're in the game, they're learning. To me, that's how, this is Shopify's mindset right now. Like how can I do the next level of learning? And for them, $2 billion, maybe two, you know, a year ago or, Maybe they'd be happy to have back now, you know, if they're stock or something, but that's, that's their choice. And so 
if long-term the economics are going to mean that they need to own, I think we've pretty much, it's, it's very hard to refute that. It's, it's yeah. hard to establish that. That's one major path. The other major path is, is actually in the opposite direction. It's not just asset light. It's, it's almost connectivity only. You know, to me, if you treat the world of supply chain services like an app store, and say if you look, look, what is the, one of the biggest friction points that merchants have with a 3PL is there are a lot of old, terrible 3PLs out there that want you to connect through FTP or EDI or Google Sheets or like I've seen ESVs. everything. And I've, I've yep. seen you, I'm sure you've seen it all too. So, and the brand is like, what does this even mean? And Shopify could solve all those problems. And every 3L, 3PL would run to them to integrate, integrate to their solution as long as I could go to Shopify's app store, click one button, and now I'm integrated to any 3PL in North America. And that would or not start, require any acquisition. Or, or start, you know, p- putting your WMS, right? Like, so they, they definitely with their SFN network, they built something. Mm-hmm. Start providing that to the 3PLs. That's one direction, of course, right? And the other is they got to build something uh, of their own. Yeah. I, I agree. The WMS I question agree. is a, it's, a, it's another tricky one because... Um, who else is selling to the 3PLs? Six River Systems. Yep. Which I don't understand what was the th- rationale or thought process. Someday it will come out. But yes. <laughs> so so they're selling to the 3PLs. And in the meantime, Shopify is trying to put them on which 3PL? Maybe not the same one. So yeah, Shopify Logistics. Yeah, yeah there's, some, there's some friction there. Um, that I, I, I think agree. will have to be resolved. Yeah. I mean, you know, we, we talk about the pillars on the Shopify logistics side of things, right? It just does not come across, at least today, as a cohesive strategy. I'm sure they, they, there is, you know, some big brain power being utilized out there and we can't see through the 3D chess that is being played, right? But someday the, the <laughs> we'll all understand it. But at this point, I struggle. So Exactly. I mean, and if you look at the markets, just like, Who's who's Six Rivers customer? Like, let's just talk about like three minutes before the acquisition. Who is Six River trying to sell to? Huge brands and retailers. Exactly. Because that's where the volume is, and yep. that's you know literally the opposite of Shopify's customer. Right. That's exactly. five to ten percent of it. Right. Right. That's, exactly. Yeah. And I mean, you know, just to touch on that SFN part, right? Uh, the the thought process was, you you mentioned something around uh, how SFN from a network development standpoint, they they thought it would be easy. And I think w- one of the things that th- they thought is getting into physical infrastructure execution is the same as software development. Like I can just add a feature. You can't just add a feature inside a building when you need to now start doing a special type of kitting or this customer wants their triangle box versus this other customers that wants a purple box because you can't do the Amazon experience. You can't do just brown boxes when it comes to Shopify. Shopify merchants are extremely unique and that brand experience is super critical to them. And that just adds this layers and layers and layers and layers of complexities 
and we have done this. We have done this many, many, many times. Um, mm. Myself and Dan, and I've seen how much <laughs> complexity it brings, and it's really hard to do. And yeah. you can't have the mixing of basket experience that Amazon does. I mean, just Amazon just sits in a really good position from what they have ended up building. A marketplace is much different than what we are doing with brands. So, yeah, and, and I think so. The only way to do that is like, how do you make a low, a high, mar- higher margin, low volume business work in logistics? That is the really the critical question for Shopify. Absolutely. On that note, Rick, I want to thank you so much for uh, for joining us and definitely want to give you an opportunity to uh, to let everyone know how they could follow you, how they could learn more about your consulting practice. And, uh, and again, highly recommend that everyone check out the Watson Weekly podcast as well. For your weekly listening, guys. And it has <laughs> been a pleasure, by the way, Rick. Uh, I, I love talking to you, man. As soon as, as soon as it was like, it's time to talk to Rick, it's like, what should we not talk about? Because there is so much we can talk about. I'm sure you're going to be a repeat guest. Um, uh, Loved the conversation. So yeah, how do people follow you, brother? Yeah, people can follow me, uh, you know, search for me on LinkedIn, Rick Watson, uh, my website, rmwcommerce.com. And, uh, you know, my podcast, just go on Apple Podcasts or Google or, what you know, Pocket or anything. Search for the Watson Weekly and get your e-commerce digest every Monday morning. Fantastic. Love it. Love it. Thank you so much, Rick. Thank you. Thanks a lot, guys. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast to maximize your supply chain. Available on all major podcasting channels. Thank you for listening and see you in the next episode.